We're almost there, you guys. 300 episodes. And to celebrate, on November 6th, I'm doing a big, big panel here in Los Angeles at Largo at the Coronet. Uh, again, November 6th, Carlton Cuse, Mike Shore, Damon Lindelof, Marta Kaufman, Hart Hansen, Jane Esmondson, Doug Petrie, David Fury, Liz Tiglar, Bridget Carpenter, Andrew Miller, and more. So many people, uh, there are not enough chairs at Largo, that I, so I have to go out and rent them. So please come. Come celebrate 300 episodes of the Writers' Panel with me, with these old pals. Some new pals will be there. Uh, that is on November 6th. Before that, I have a couple of events coming in October. Uh, on October 14th and 15th, I'll be at NerdCon Stories 2016 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, doing a bunch of different things. Click on my face on their website, and uh, you'll find out the things I'm doing. But there's Acker and I are doing a little chat. Uh, I'm on a panel about adaptation, and I'm doing a big live writers panel with John Green, who wrote The Fault in Our Stars and uh, a bunch of other really great books. I'm, I'm a longtime fan of his. On Sunday, October 30th, I'll be at EW Pop Fest. That's Entertainment Weekly's Pop Fest in Los Angeles, which has an insane lineup, and I can't believe they invited me to be part of it. Uh, I'm going to be doing a live panel with a very special guest that I will announce soon. Uh, check that out. And then, as I said, November 6th is the writer's panel live at Largo at the Coronet uh, 300th episode celebration. All of the information for all of these can be found at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And follow me on Twitter. I'll be talking about them uh, as we get close to them and as they happen. Uh, that's at Ben Blacker on Twitter. Hope to see you at one of these or all of these live events. Now entering Nerdist.com. I am the managing editor at The Nerdist. Um, uh, I am also the creator and co-host of Fangirling, which is the show on The Nerdist. And uh, yeah, and I can't believe the panel that I have for you guys today. Um, Nerdist TV's Boundary Pushers is something that I've wanted to do for a while, and um, I don't really know how to even begin to express how excited I am about this. You know, when you think about pie in the sky, sort of like, who would be like the coolest people to talk to? In my mind, it's, it's Brian Fuller, it's Stephen Moffat, and it's Michael Green. And when I somehow managed to trick them to come be on this panel, I almost peed a little bit because it's... I, the, I mean, these men have created some of the most amazing, exciting, thrilling television shows out there. I mean, we've got Doctor Who, we have Sherlock, we have Hannibal. Yeah, I mean, like, I, we... We have Smallville, like I, and I also have to personally thank Michael Green for bringing Chris Pratt into our life as Everwood. <laughs> you know, like, 
like there's there's just so much to do, say, think, and talk to these brilliant minds about when it comes to really kind of changing the game and pushing television to new exciting places. So without further ado, I would love to bring out our incredible panelists, so please give them a round of applause, Mr. Brian Fuller, Michael Green, and Stephen Moffat. Nicholson is here. Yes, Hannibal. Because we will never not want to remember, talk about, and think about Mads Mikkelsen as Hannibal Lecter, who I love Anthony Hopkins. I love him, but Mads Mikkelsen is like my Hannibal Lecter personally. I can't get enough of that. So, hi guys. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to Comic Con. Thank you for having us. Yes. So, I the first thing that I want to say and sort of discuss with you guys is you're all kind of genre masters in my opinion and I think that's something that genre TV has done more so than you know maybe any other sort of area of television is really kind of push the audience in a way to get them to expect demand and you know, aspire for more from what their on-screen storytelling is. And I am sort of curious what you guys think about how you know, the world of genre television has afforded us a better television overall in terms of what you guys bring to elevated storytelling. <laughs> well, on that subject, I was, I was mainly hoping they'd answer first, and I'd, I'd kind of agree with them. Um, I don't know, genre, I, it's, I, don't, I, I don't really know what to say about it. I, Doctor Who and Sherlock, one's science fiction, one's not. I, I kind of think it, uh, in, in the case of those particular two shows, they're kind of, it's more like drama is entertainment or something. I don't quite know what we'd call that. Um, it's the, it's, in the case of Doctor Who, it's, the thing that I'm most aware of is it's the show that is completely different every week. That you don't have a precinct, um, well, your precinct is the entire universe and all of space and time provided you can afford it in Wales. Um, it's a very small palette from which to blend your stories. Um, and um, it's, I suppose, if you're t uh, talking about, in the broadest sense, genre, ideas are at the heart of it. It's, you know, really, a, uh, normally a drama would probably, he says, having written hardly any, um, uh, uh, would normally involve a situation or characters. Genre seems to involve a huge idea. You know, what if your psychiatrist also liked to eat people? Is, is not, is, you're, you're not going to normally find that in another thing. Can I just say something really scandalous about Hannibal Lecter? Oh my gosh, please do. As, as portrayed in your show, Brian is my wife, we, should, we watched it together, and after one episode, I think it was in the second series, and he'd done something really, really awful, and I was sitting there thinking, dear God, what's wrong with Brian? And, <laughs> and Sue turned to me, and I'm not making this up, said, do you know, I think he's quite a good psychiatrist. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that's telling. Saying, I don't think he is. <laughs> I 
think you could get struck off for some of that stuff. <laughs> but in that heightened world, you have to have an idea. I suppose that's it. And an idea has to be introduced and uh, developed and resolved in the space of one episode. You, in, in genre television, you are working far harder than those slackers who didn't bother to come to this convention this week. <laughs> Well, I think one of the, the fun things about genre television is that you're not constrained by reality. And that leaves us such a wide uh, variety of places to go to in storytelling. I remember as a kid seeing something that was science fiction and realizing, oh, wow, they're coloring outside the lines and it's fantastic. And so it just gives you so many more choices because you don't, you're not restrained by physics. Yeah. Um, these guys gave me a second to think of something funny to say. Uh, no, I remember my, my first genre writing experience was going into Smallville, and I remember being in that meeting and thinking, this is the first time where my interest in genre is actually useful after having written for television for many years. And it occurred to me that one of the fun things about genre is no one wanted it for a really long time. It's really in the last sudden impulse of television that it's gotten to be so much more prevalent. And so the systems that make these things were very happy for people like these guys to come in and say, here's what we're going to do, because it didn't fit in necessarily to what they were accustomed to making. So for creators and people who wanted to push outside the boundaries, you could come in and define the boundaries. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, in terms of that, because you were saying about the popularity of genre and stuff, I, it feels very intrinsically tied to me in terms of societal changes and turmoil and, and sort of that need for control in a place where you, you kind of can't find control or a common ground. Do you think that um, the reason for, you know, the... How do I even put this? The, um, the explosion now is part of that or do you think that it's just because the escapism and the capabilities of the stories that you can tell in science fiction in you know comic book in all of those sort of different fun worlds um, speaks to something more playful and, and nostalgic well, there is a certain amount of escapism in it that's, that's really satisfying. You look at what's happening in this country today, and it, it almost feels science fictionalized with how hateful and odd everything has gotten. And uh, so I look at what's happening in the... <laughs> No offense to anybody, uh, the Republican National Convention was depressing as hell to watch. And I just feel like I was watching a lot of decent Republicans being held hostage by a really ugly agenda. And I certainly want to go to Ghostbusters after watching right? I would just love to see the Ghostbusters bust Donald Trump, really, you know? <laughs> um, but so I would love to know, outside of your guys' own shows, what do you feel is the most exciting either show or thing happening on TV outside of your own shows themselves? How to silence three egotists. Eh? <laughs> no. oh, How to have a dynamic no. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's the audience, actually. I mean, to, to say something yeah. about you guys. Uh, this audience grew up wanting to watch something and now gets it and now gets to say this is what we want more of so we get to make it so please keep doing that thank you thank you no and, and that's yeah. that's a real thing the audience that used to be serviced was the type who were very very happy for Perry Mason to finish in 41 minutes and get a guilty conviction <laughs> is it, I mean I sometimes wonder though was there ever really a time 
when this sort of stuff wasn't popular. If you go back through it, it's always been there. It, there was a time, certainly, at the BBC, where if you, if you pitched a science fiction idea, they'd say, well, science fiction isn't popular. And the, the poor guy would say, well, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who. You look at all these incredibly successful movies that have been going back through almost the entire history of cinema. And they say, well, those are all exceptions. And I'm, and I'm actually not kidding. I think, this come, I think the explosion now is people realise that, uh, or the people who fund television and fund movies realise that people really like that sort of nonsense and are not alarmed by it. They think it's fun. Um, and I mean, obviously, if you've all, if you spent your, your childhood being a, an utterly tragic geek... <laughs> uh, Nobody in this room, with, right? Yeah, but imagine, it, 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 you know, I'm 54. Uh, this, was, this was my dreadful secret, you know, Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes. These weren't things you said to impress people. Uh, <laughs> and then suddenly you grow up and suddenly everybody likes those things. It's like somebody found your porn stash and said, nice. <laughs> I know. Right? So, oh my gosh. That, that specifically hasn't happened, but it could be the next move. I don't know. Your liability becomes your asset. Uh, yeah. As my mother said. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that must be really exciting for you guys, though, um, in terms of being able to play in that world when you're creating stuff. I am sort of dying to know... How like how do you guys come to the ideas that you come to? Obviously, with Sherlock, you have Sir Arthur Conan Doyle stories, and with Hannibal, you had like the backstory and, and American Gods. Like we have Neil Gaiman's incredible book, but like, is there something um, with or without that sort of background information that you that excites you and helps you or energizes your creative process in a way that might be different from you know something that might be a little bit more traditional? Well, I think uh, we're all consumers as well. We love this genre. We like working in this genre because it's the genre that we like to watch. So because we enjoy it so much, we've seen a lot of it. So we're able to put up orange cones where we've seen many others tread before and chart new paths. So it's something, you know, it's great about working with Michael on American Gods is that we, we both have similar tastes and we can say like, oh, I feel like I've seen that before. That doesn't feel as fresh to me. And let's, let's try to find something that's striking a, a new tone for us. You have to bring in something you're interested in already. So in the case of American Gods, Brian and I were both very separately interested in writing about religion in America and the place of faith in both a reverential and occasionally iconoclastic way. And there aren't a lot of shows that were addressing that. And we just felt that there was, this was a place not only to adapt something we really loved and to try and want to come in and be the custodians of and honor and uh, raise up, but also to have something to say about what's happening right now in another convention even. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, I'm. No, it just it it does it all. It really does all kind of play together, and I think that um, it's something that a lot of fans really respond to. And in terms of talking about fans and fandom, you guys all work in shows that have huge fandoms, and I wonder if it's how what's it like sort of working in that world when you have an audience that's not only here at Comic-Con, they're on Twitter, they're on social media, they're letting you know constantly what they think about how this works. How does that play into both your creative process um, and how you think about servicing those people that are a nanosecond away from telling you how they feel? I think it's probably... <laughs> 
uh, a unique moment in history where there is no barrier between the people who make the show and the people who watch the show. And there is absolutely no way in which that isn't a good thing. Uh, if you look at, if you think about the people who watch these shows and many others, uh, they can, it's not just that they can communicate directly with the people who made them, because frankly that's not that interesting. What you're going to discover on every single occasion is that all those fabulous exotic shows are made by entirely ordinary people. You're going you're to get used to it and slightly bored of that revelation. But what is true is you think, because of the way things are now, you could make your own version. The, the explosion of, uh, not so much of communication with the creators, but of uh, fan fiction, fan movies, um, all those things, uh, um, at, at, you know, coruscatingly high levels of quality at times. And an extraordinary departure. It becomes, it becomes the cradle of the next generation of creatives in a, in an incredibly exciting way. And, and cradle is, a, is you know, that's, I, that's a patronizing word, I just realized. Um, the, it's, I thought it sounded it's a, cozy It's a gymnasium, you know, it's what, what? Sorry? It's all cozy and comfy. Yeah, it's nice. Well, yeah, but I thought, you know, they're actually doing better than babies. Not that babies aren't, you know, really clever too, if there are any And delicious. You're all the baby fans. Um, <laughs> love you, babies. Watch our show. But, you know, in that terms, that, that, you know, that creative response, I think, has been uh, that that it becomes clear that television is not made uh, and movies are not made by remote, inaccessible magic people who live in a storm on a cloud or something, that they're just made by really, really ordinary people and, hey, guess what, you actually could do it yourself and these days you've got better technology on your iPhone than we used to make Doctor Who on and you could edit it and you know what, you don't even need the television station, you can put it on YouTube. This is a sort of magical time. So everything, everything about that is good, I think, for everybody, including us. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think about that um, that mashup video. I don't know if you guys have seen because everybody always wants the the Doctor Who Sherlock crossover to happen. The Hulak video. Did you see that at any point? Mm. Somebody made. It's called Hulak. Oh, I know the guy who made it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, he's brilliant. It's absolutely it's, astonishing work. Yeah. It's yeah. incredible, and I wonder what it's like to be to inspire that sort of thing. I mean, we see fan art all the time for you know for Hannibal and and for so many like all the things that you guys do. Um, how how is it like being in a world where they you you that just comes to you and you get to see it and kind of be in, are you inspired by that? Something? I'm inspired and uh, and kind of kind of envious to be and this is a promising thing to say to all you people here who want to get into the industry and all that stuff. I'm envious of the people who start now. Because yeah. because the facilities, the the things that you can have in your home on your computer, the um, the, the uh, this as a place to start, where the only limit, well, I say the only limit is your talent, and you're about to discover what a crippling limit that is for all of us. <laughs> because in days gone by, when small fools like me were growing up, we could say things like, "Well, if I was given the opportunity, I could do much better than that television program." No, you arsing couldn't. Uh, these days, these days you find that out really fast and you sort yourself out and you learn how to do it well and you realise that, you know, and it's true, this is true television and movies are made by perfectly ordinary people hoodwinking you into thinking there's anything special about them these days these guys can't be hoodwinked they know that they're just as dull as us and they can make programmes just as good as we can that's great <laughs> I called you all dull, don't clap <laughs> I meant I'm dull too God, that came out bad <laughs> well, we're all, we're all boring because we're humans. No, but um, I think that that's 
that speaks very much to you know this 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 idea of um, like normalcy and um, the idea of what is normal. And I think that in a lot of ways, the characters that you guys create sort of help rebuff this idea that I think for certain, you know, forms of media that people ingest, there's this idea of like who and what certain characters should be, how they should act in the world, how they should interact with each other. Um, And... That doesn't seem to be the case on any of your guys' shows at all. Um, what's the most fun thing for you guys in terms of creating characters and how those characters are then um, received by the audience? I think the unpredictability of it. You don't know. You create a character and, and suddenly that one takes off. And, and you can see it taking off. You can see it in the studio and think, yeah, that really works. No idea why, as ever. Um, and then people really love that character. And you think, God, I'm really clever. I came up with that. I wish I knew why it works. Um, I, I think the unpredictability. I think one of the fun things about writing characters is finding some horcrux of yourself that you're putting in them and you get to like go I know what this character would do because they think this way about the world and so do I you can't always make a global representation of yourself through a character but you can put some tiny point of view that you agree with that'll be your touchstone for that character and it feels authentic and there's something about when you find when you're telling a story and looking for a distinctive character trait when you when you feel an authenticity in writing it or seeing an actor bring it to life it feels so satisfying because it feels honest mm-hmm. for me it's satisfying because i'm incredibly i'm an incredibly lazy person and when you have a character that is wholly realized and embodied by a character by an actor who's wholly embodying it um it becomes much easier to do because you know when it's right and when it's wrong and you don't have to keep fighting gravity on it to get off the ground, uh, which is very good when you're tired. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. And all three of you guys have also um, worked with characters that have already existed and you know have existed for a long time. And, and um, creating fresh versions of that, um, from my outsider perspective, feels like a very kind of daunting thing. What is it like for you guys, you know, to create a new Hannibal Lecter, to create a new, you know, Doctor Who, to, you know, to create a new Superman and, and things like that. Like, what is that like and how, how do you do that? It's fan fiction, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, I... Very expensive I, fan fiction. I'm a, a huge Thomas Harris fan. And so reading those books and having digested the books to the level that I had, it was really satisfying just to tweak it a little bit toward uh, a direction that I would want to see the characters go in. Mm-hmm. Hanagram. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I think that one of the keys to it though, and that's probably a different way of saying the same thing, is if you are dealing with a character like Hannibal Lecter or Doctor Who or Sherlock Holmes, is you do not know better you don't know better. You're not there to fix it. You're there, yes, maybe to restore the original as best you can, given that, the, that this monolith now exists in a new age. But you do not know better. The people who made that in the first place know better than you. Uh, so don't change it. You're dealing with Sherlock Holmes. I think uh, 
one of the things that Mark and I got very right about Sherlock is we uh, is actually we stuck quite close to the detail of that character and how it works. We did the, the big radical thing that's quite attention-getting of updating him, but kind of so what? Mostly what we did was not know better than Doyle because nobody knows how to write Sherlock Holmes better than Arthur Conan Doyle. That's very true. <laughs> um, so I want to know, to talk to you guys specifically about your shows, which I'm such a huge fan of and I'm trying not to be fangirl but the show I am on is called fangirling so this is hard for me um I um and I love to know some tidbits about um some ideas that you've had that you've felt like what's like the craziest idea that you brought to you know the network or the powers of being go like I want to do this with this character and what was the reception like did you ever have you guys ever had something where the network's like, no, no, no. Like, how, what, no, why? Because all three of you guys really do kind of, you push, not to like use the name of the thing, but you guys push the boundaries of that in everything that you do. So I would love to know that. One of the, the fun things about when, when we were developing Pushing Daisies, there, were, there was... Yes! <laughs> uh, we were talking a lot about body function stuff with with Chuck and what would happen when you come back from the grave and you would probably be passing a lot of formaldehyde in really inconvenient ways and so ABC was like oh we kind of don't want to see her on the toilet draining formaldehyde so why don't you come up with a better solution which is why she became Jewish because they go right he looks the at ground. me when he says Jewish, by yes. the way. Well, I was developing at... <laughs> we were at Heroes together at the same time, so I got a lot of Jewish information from Michael at that time. Uh, but now that Available we're... Available for Bruce's environments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> now that we're doing Laura Moon on American Gods, we're like, let's... Let's have more she can fun with pee this. from Aldehyde. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you see too in the book, um, especially towards the end. No, but like you, you, you see and feel what Laura's feeling too with that. Um, and I'm for one very excited to see what that's like. But um, did you did you pull a lot from that stuff that you couldn't really do? We talked a lot about it, and there's a lot of stuff that uh, I wanted to do on Pushing Daisies with Chuck that we couldn't because it's, you know, a family show, and we do that and so much more with uh, Laura. She's, uh, there's a lot of body humor with being dead. Yeah. She seems like it's like, it's like body horror just made absolutely comedic is the opportunity there with Laura, especially. It's a little Cronenberg. Like spoiler, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, no spoilers. No spoilers. Trying um, really hard. No, I, I have a weird one. Um, it was less about character, but I was trying. I, I had the opportunity to adapt League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which didn't go, but it was a great chance to go after something I really loved. And um, I had a uh, structure I wanted to employ that was complex, and I they, they balked at it because they were worried it was just too much for the audience, especially in the first episode. And I pointed to season three of Sherlock and said, we're, we're in a world where this stuff exists, and sign of the three and empty hearse, and like, if, if that, in that audience is not only okay with it, but demands it and loves it, and they, they're, they're challenging us to do better. Um, and that was met with deafening silence, and I did what I wanted to, and it didn't go. <laughs> Sorry. But thank you. I work on the end of that anecdote, yeah. I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it's uh, coming on next week. <laughs> but what about you, Stephen? Do you have any sort of thing that you wanted to, either with Sherlock or Doctor Who, where it was just like, this is crazy. Can um, I do it, please? <laughs> well, it's extraordinary in Doctor Who, I suppose, because 
Um, it's been so successful for so long, people tend not to. Uh, I mean, I, I, I chase after the BBC saying, I look, are you seriously okay if we do this? Is that all right? And they say, if you say so. And I say, no, no, you can't. I, I would like a judgment on somebody who's not me. Um, and, uh, you know, that can be tricky. But um, to be honest, I think with... Um, I think Doctor Who is probably, and, and Charlotte, because they've become so mainstream, certainly in the, in the UK, maybe not so much here. Uh, that, uh, I would call it pretty mainstream here. I would, I would go ahead and make that bold, hot take. I, I, I didn't expect to get a squeal of outrage from the word mainstream. But, uh, <laughs> it's good to hear it now. No. Um, is, uh, is, is that you're, you are wanting to push the boundaries. Uh, you're, I mean, I'm, I'm always concerned not to to chase everybody away as well you know that's a, that's a thing um, I was having an argument with somebody recently saying you know all those really uptight right wing people we don't like we want them to watch our show as well um, and we want them to leave their kids in front of our show so do you know what we're not, we're not, we're not here to tell people off and sometimes the best bits of writing I've done have been trying to write from the opposite point of view from the one I hold you know, I would write a very bad lefty, but I can write a good right winger because I'm never going to be one. <laughs> right? Just be absolutely bloody clear. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I so that. But um, I, I, God, I've done a very bad answer on boundaries there, and it's the central, <laughs> central part of your thesis. Sorry. No, you're <laughs> doing great, Stephen. You're doing great. <laughs> I either to a halt there. <laughs> no. Um, do you are there? Has there ever been like a particular story? Um, where you just really wanted to go out on a limb in terms of like challenging the audience. Because, like, one of the things I feel like is very fun and very beneficial about Sherlock and Doctor Who in particular is, like, you have to pay attention. This is not a story where you can just sort of, like, lollygag around and be like, oh, I'm doing a thing, I'm tweeting, and oh, yeah, look, okay, there's Clara, okay, you know. Um, you have, you really do, like, you have to pay attention, and you're sort of demanding a smarter audience in a lot of ways. Well, you know, young people, even younger than you, they're so clever now that they can, they can do the tweeting thing and play Angry Birds and watch your show and pick it apart uh, uh, while not actually looking at it. Uh, that's true. They are that clever now. Um, in terms of pushing it, I mean, uh, I'm, I, I did, I suppose, we did an episode of, uh, of Doctor Who recently, uh, rashly, um, called Heaven Sent, where the, the Doctor was entirely on his own. It was essentially a one-hander. So I, I did go and say, is, is, is everybody all right with me spending public money on this clear insanity? Um, uh, and, but, you know, they were. The BBC's like that. The BBC doesn't... Uh, we, we're, we're not really uh, getting pursued by a horrible network there. They're, 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 they're lovely. Yeah. So. Well, I imagine, too, because now, Brian, you've worked... And, and Michael, too, you've worked both on, like, network and cable. Um, and I feel as though... Similar with the BBC, where there's, there's a little bit... It feels as though, for me as a viewer, um, that you are afforded a lot more opportunities and risks in cable or, you know, somewhat, something like BBC or an HBO or something where... Is there more trust... Um, of the showrunner and of your guys' ideas, either network versus cable or just, you know, over time as television has kind of, in my opinion, superseded movies in terms of storytelling. I think so. I mean, it's a little bit the arc of Home Alone, isn't it? Like, Kevin's by himself and then he eats too much ice cream and he goes, oh, stomachache, I shouldn't do that again. And then he does put himself to bed eventually. But eventually the parents come home and make sure he's okay. I, I, there's... 
it's it's an interesting juxtaposition because NBC let us do whatever we wanted on Hannibal, and we're so <laughs> thank God for that, right? Oh, oh. They, like for three years they let us get away with murder. We had like we were we were kind of a like a hard X, like in terms of the violence. And can, you, can you tell them the one thing they couldn't let you do? <gasps> Please what do. Was that? The, the, It's like that show, you've seen it, it's amazing, all the stuff that people say got away, it was more they encouraged. And he, I once asked him, like everyone does, what was the one thing it wouldn't let you do? Uh, that we couldn't show bare buttocks, but we could fill them with blood and it would be okay. <laughs> all right, okay. And that is a strange thing about network television today because they are actively chasing the heels of... They're betters, can you say that? And uh, because there is wonderful television being made there. But at the same time, there are things that are institutionally problematic. Why is butt crack okay? Yet horrible, but wonderful violence is not. Well, I think it, that, that speaks greater to a systemic issue in America that is violence is okay, but sex and sensuality and love is not. And I think that's yeah. the... I, I look to our vice presidential candidate, uh, Mike Pence, who's incredibly anti-gay, and yet he is representing an entire party, and I think that's so horribly fucked up. Um, to that point that you um, just made so eloquently, um, I just completely lost my question. So we're going to move on to the next one. Yay! Um, what? I don't know if No. So is there something that you would really... I know, like, Stephen, for Sherlock, um, you have a wealth of stories to choose from with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Is there any story that you're just dying to do on Sherlock that you haven't been able to do yet? No, we kind of... We act on the principle that we might get axed any second, so to hell with deferred pleasure, do it now. Uh, if you... Uh, and that applies to everything in life. Um, do, do it absolutely now. So we haven't, we haven't sort of held treats away from ourselves, no. We have got our, uh, the third episode of Charlotte that we're shooting right now, which is at insane levels of wish fulfillment, I think. And Mark and I wrote it together, and we completely lost our minds. So that's, uh, that's, com that's completely insane. Oh, and tell me more. Now I'm going to be very vague. Oh. If I summarized it, it would... <laughs> Do you... Oh, please, God damn it. Come on. It's just us friends here. It's not like, you know, it's just very casual. Yeah. Uh, um, but... So, uh, getting back to the visibility thing, I think that this is something that all of your guys' shows do address, and I think that, would you say that um, the shows that you do and the shows that run the whole gamut of genre television um, help aid that sort of, like, visibility and diversification that... I, you know, it's like the idea of the rising tide lifts all boats, and I think that sometimes TV is that tide in terms of, like, social change and just um, normalizing things that are often very maligned um, in culture. I don't know if you guys, how you feel that your shows play into that or if you would love to, you know, like, if there's something you would love to do to sort of help move that visibility and normalization forward. Well, I think uh, an example of that... Uh, I, I don't think we would be where we are 
liberally with gay rights if it weren't for will and grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like it, it brought it normalized homosexuality and made it accessible, and it feels like it it changed a lot of perceptions. And uh, so it's 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 not just genre shows; it's it's sometimes shows like like Will and Grace that really set a path. Yeah. Um, oh no, somebody's crying. Um, so what is it? Will and Grace. Yeah. yeah. Like I thought. This is a Will and Grace panel. Um, no, I um, would love to know from you guys: Is there something on your show that you've done that you wish you could have pushed even farther or gone to even more extreme lengths to kind of blow out the storytelling? Ever? Well, butter. It's clearly. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, how could we have done the Bilquist thing more? I know we kind of than we did. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it goes to your earlier question. It's it, networks, to their credit, now are willing to accept uh, a smaller slice of an audience pie. It's not, you know, broadcast networks are literally called broadcasting. They're trying to get mm-hmm. everyone, and just that willingness to be like, okay, if you have a show that just has more violence, then that's not for people with that sensitivity. Um, our show, I have to tell at the Thanksgiving table this has a lot of content, it might not be for every family member here enjoying the turkey uh, and that's okay um, and that's a major advantage Are they stuffing the turkey at the time? Not everyone likes stuffing So, um, uh, but we're making a lot of stuffing and you get a lot of encouragement from the people your benefactors saying please keep going that way, We, uh, it's been a while since we, I've heard, since we've heard that's too far, uh, you tend to get things that are more about how can we make sure people still are able to enjoy it or understand it? Um, and that's good because the, you do get a lot of rope to try to go too far and then make sure it's still enjoyable. Yeah. Well, that kind of speaks to another point in terms of like understanding um, story because all of you are, are operating on a higher level. And Stephen, <laughs> I'm watching like the last episode of Sherlock that we got and going through that timeline and like the breaking down of it and and Doctor Who too. You you have to. Um, I imagine how challenging is it to plot out because you guys really do create very like complicated, intelligent stories. What? How do you map that out in a way that's both fun and exciting, but also still allows the audience to really stay with what's going on in the story and keep up, for lack of a better term. Um, I think the audience, far from getting lost, uh, will generally speaking be ahead of you. I mean, that's the absolute truth. They talk about the wisdom of the crowds. Most of the wisdom of the audience is epic. Uh, trying, trying to be too clever for an audience won't work. You can be too unclear for an audience. That's just you getting it wrong. But you can't be too clever. They will, they will outthink you. They will work it out. Any time I see Doctor Who or Sherlock with a big audience of people and I think I've got something really smart and clever that they won't see coming, I can hear the whisper build around me and I think, oh, God. 15 bloody minutes before the reveal... Um, yes, yeah. I, I don't. I, I. I think. I think it's fine. I think people make the big thing is not. I mean, it's not about. It's about making people want to watch. That's the key thing. If people want to watch, they'll pay attention. 
if they're paying attention, it doesn't matter how complicated it is, but you've got to get their attention first. That's the difficult bit. Going through the complexity is fine because you're dealing with hugely intelligent people who are watching your show. You are. You actually are. You've got to make that assumption. It's a very safe assumption. People are smart. They really are. So uh, uh, your problem is not the complexity of the plot line, but how are you going to make um, them pay attention to it in the first place? There's a great fear, a wrong fear, that, uh, that people talk, uh, talk about all the time in uh, screenplay writing, that everyone's terrified of exposition. This is moronically wrong. People love exposition. People love it. Agatha Christie's one of the most famous, most uh, uh, money-making writers in history. She made the entire climactic chapter all <laughs> exposition, right? And she's richer than anyone's ever been. Exposition is fine, provided you've made people want to know. So complexity is not an issue for anyone. Making people interested enough that they engage with your complicated story is. So where I've screwed up, it's because I did. It's because I didn't get them in their seats listening, not because what I was trying to tell them was too complicated. My tiny brain could never keep up with them anyway, so it's fine. Can I go back to your two questions ago, because I'm still thinking. Yes, of course. Sorry, yeah, I know. I told you I'm slow uh, and jet-lagged. Um, it's, uh, you know, about uh, television as an agent of social change. Um, I think it's... And you talked about, uh, uh, you know, you know the, the tide rising, all the boats and all that. Mm. I, think, I think what it... I think... You can make campaigning television, and loads of people have, and campaigning television is incredibly important. It makes a huge issue of whatever you're talking about. But, the, but if you really want to make change, it's really what Brian was saying about will and grace. If you tell young people, hey, that's just perfectly normal and we don't even bother looking at that, then, then you make a change. And I'm thinking specifically of you present gay characters as as that's the most boring thing about them. The single dullest thing about them is that no one even bothers to mention it. They don't use the word gay anyway. It doesn't matter. Then particularly children, children who already know they're gay, are, are thinking, oh, so that's not a thing then, fine. That's, that's how you do it. You do it slowly and you do it gently. And, all, and you do it all the time. If the danger with wonderful campaigning television is if you're saying, again to children, this person's gay and we forgive him for being gay, then, you, then that kid's thinking, I didn't even know it was a thing. I didn't know I had to be forgiven for that. Damn! So, uh, so that, that's, that is why I think something like Will and Grace makes a bigger change than anything else can. It changes the, it changes the note you're singing all the time. Um, I will answer the question you've just asked me in two questions' time. Okay, if that's all. Great, perfect. That sounds that's a I mean, great timeline for me. For him, nonlinear storytelling comes so naturally. <laughs> I know. I should the really actually, expect. The thesis was that it's easy and everyone gets it and it's fine, and then yeah. Should really you honestly. Discard the, the first five minutes of that. Yeah. <laughs> I had a really good answer to that that I did at the beginning of the yeah. panel. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so, speaking to what we were talking about a question and a half ago, Stephen, um, I one of my things that I love to do, because I love rabbit holes, and I always say I put on my tinfoil hat, it's like my tinfoil hat like fan theories um, about what they think is going to happen, what we think this all means, how it could actually play out this is something that I do far too often um, especially when I'm recapping shows and stuff have you guys ever encountered um, like a fan theory or a fan um, idea about a character or a storyline that you're like, oh 
Oh, I, I kind of really like that. I, I kind of wish that's what I was doing or like, you know, something where you're like, oh, that would have been really fun and exciting to do. A friend of mine, uh, Paul Cornell, a writer, very good, very fine writer, had a theory about the, uh, the end of the Sherlock episode, the, the Reichenbach Fall. I've never told him this. If he watches this playback, he'll realize this for the first time. And he, and he figured he'd worked out something rather clever we'd done about how Sherlock knew uh, that there'd be a body that looked just like him. And I said to Mark, that's very clever. Let's put it in the show. <laughs> Naturally, we didn't tell him. Uh, and then he blogged about how he was clever to have worked that out. And Mark and I just thought, you know, that clever son, you haven't, well, you stole it from you. <laughs> <laughs> but not very often. That's the only time I think I've actually done that. Because you have to, you slightly have to, you, you do have, I mean, I, I, I love the huge fan response to these things, but there's so much of it, you're, you, you spend the rest of your life doing that. I, and I don't think it's the job of the, uh, of the creator or a writer of a show to go and mark the work of fan writers. I think they should get on with it without us peeking over their shoulders saying, hmm, you've got that wrong, because I would. So, I mean, I don't want to do that. <laughs> oh, man. What about you guys? Have you had anything fun like that? I mean, the nice thing about television is you're generally ahead of what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. So they're theorizing about... They might have a better idea than what you had six months ago. Where were you then? Um, uh, between seasons, we're usually too tired to look. Um, no. I don't know. I, I, yeah, it's one of those things that I always love um, just recapping and writing about television is, is, is seeing those ideas that people have, you know, where it's like, especially um, I think about um, with Hannibal... Uh, when Will Graham was like in, you know, when all that stuff was going wrong with his, uh, oh my gosh, the, the, with the thing in the head. With Encephalitis. Yes, thank yeah. you. Like what that meant. And like, see, thank you. You want to come up here? You can just like, uh, no. Um, and um, hearing what people thought about that and like where they thought that came from and what it was and stuff like that. Do you ever get to a chance to like read some of those and just kind of be like, no, that's that's fun. Yeah, there was there was one theory about the encephalitis that basically Will Graham caught it because he was eating contaminated uh, brains that Hannibal was feeding him, which is is sort of a source. But uh, I think the whole Hannah Graham thing. Initially, I wanted to do Hannibal because I was intrigued by heterosexual male friendships and. The, the intensity and the passion that men can have for each other that doesn't have a, a necessarily a sexual nature. And then it felt like the, those who are passionately dedicated to the show wanted, wanted a little bit more than that. And uh, I remember writing Hugh, uh, as Will Graham asking, is Hannibal in love with me? And going like, this ought to like satisfy some people. And, and you know, being happy that it, it evolved to that place, but it, it, it wasn't my agenda initially, but I just thought like, oh, they seem to want this, so <laughs> let's go. Let's roll with it. No, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we're going to have we have a little bit of time for questions. I'm not sure where the microphones are there. Oh! Oh! My goodness! That I was... honestly thought you were leaving. <laughs> <laughs> the bullshit. Wow. The worst part's coming. I gotta go. That was... Oh my gosh, that was Aerobic. incredible. Yeah. I loved yeah. that so much. Um, so yeah, if you guys have any questions for our brilliant minds here, please feel free to line up. Um, one thing I just sort of want to ask you guys, if you could do 
absolutely anything in the world. You had carte blanche to tell any story. It doesn't have to be, you know, a show you're working on now. If you could do, it could it could be a scene, it could be a single story, or it could be a whole, you know, I want to do this series. If you could do anything at all, what would it be? God, I think we're doing it. Uh, yeah, I think, I think we're probably on our wish fulfillment project. Uh, and we're probably thinking, if I could do anything I wanted, would it have to be writing? That's really hard. <laughs> Can I go on holiday somewhere? I've got, I had an idea the other day for a, that I've got very obsessed with about, uh, for a TV thing, but I keep thinking, if I propose that and it gets... Because I'm, I'm going to leave Doctor Who in about a year. Um, uh, well, I have to... And write some Star Trek. <laughs> do it, do it, um, do it. So, um, I think I grew up wanting to do Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes, and uh, I'll be spending the rest of my life in bitterness and regret that I'm no longer doing so. <laughs> Um, oh, you and Matt Smith, because apparently he wants to come back to Doctor Who. You guys can just come back together, right? He never said that. That's not what he said. <laughs> For goodness sake. You'll make him cross. <laughs> all right, all right. That quiff will quiver. <laughs> um, okay. So what about you guys? Michael, Brian, anything? You're doing uh, I, I would love to do more Hannibal. Um, I'd love to see Hannibal and Will Graham in like 40 years from now. Just like... Or two. <laughs> there's, there's always one scene in a cancelled show that you're just like, I want another season just to get to that one moment. Mm-hmm. So, alternate universe somewhere, watch that, please. Mm. <laughs> um, I've just remembered, I'd really, and I know this is improbable. Is this from like two this or three like questions ago? Oh, this, is, oh, okay. this is still that question I've caught up. Oh, okay, But I'm great. very late answering it. Perfect. Um, uh, I always really wanted to do an episode of Columbo. I think I... <laughs> I realize that's difficult because, you know, he's, like, dead and shit. But um, I should, should they find him alive, uh, then I, I would love to do it. I would love to do that. I love that show. Well, we'll have, um, what we'll do is we'll have Shadow Moon give his gold coin to Columbo and bring him back. It'll, it'll be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Yes, please, your question. Hello. Hello. I really love all your shows, and I just want to know, you guys were talking about when you go to your executives and you bring them these crazy ideas and they either say, yeah, sure, or they deny them outright, what happens when you get the okay and then you bring it to the read-through for the first time? What do your actors usually say when they see all your crazy ideas and they're like, are we really doing this? <laughs> I think it, initially it's, uh, God, we really fought for this. I hope it works. Because you, you, know, you do fight for things, and then if it falls flat, you're like, oh, shit, they were right. <laughs> oh, um, the only one I can remember where it was, uh, I just go back to that Doctor Who episode again, uh, uh, with, with only Peter Capaldi in it. I remember uh, it was all fine, everyone was going with it, and then we got to, of course, I hadn't really anticipated this until I actually walked in to the read-through room and thought, oh, how's this going to go? <laughs> I'm going to be doing the stage directions and he's going to be doing the doctor. It'll be two aging Scotsmen barking at each other for 45 minutes. And so it was. <laughs> and it was wonderful. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Super Speed Demon. What's your question? Um... So first off, I just care a lot about both Doctor Who and everything Brian has made. It's a bit ridiculous, so 
thank you. But um, my question is, especially because both of you have been fans of the things you've been working on your whole life, Doctor Who and Star Trek, and I'm assuming American Gods, what do you think of fan-created works of, you know, things like fan fiction and fan art that bounced off the things you've created, maybe especially the things where you don't agree with what they've done with the character since you have started as fans and become the canonical creators? I love it. I think it's so exciting to see a fellow fan being creative with uh, something that inspired them as much as it inspired me. So it's always very satisfying and it feels like it's uh, peers. And I think the, the fan fiction around Hannibal, which was fascinating and went to much darker places than the show did i i love it and i i endorse it and i think there's there we are all people who see things and are inspired by them and that's one of the beautiful things about being at comic-con is that everybody is here because they're passionate about what they they really love to watch I think in the case of Doctor Who and Sherlock, those, those are, I mean, the, the current iterations of them are the fan response to the originals. So we're not really in a position to object to that process continuing. I certainly don't, as I said earlier. I think it's, I think it's an incredibly good way to learn the business of writing. It's an incredibly good way to learn how to write television or stories in general, is to take something that you love and try and do it yourself and then slowly discover that actually the original wasn't quite right for you, so you start changing it and making it different, until eventually you think, actually, do you know what, if I just got rid of all that crap that I was watching a while back, it'd be much better, and then you made your own thing. I think, it's, I think it is 100% healthy. I think At some it's a point, good change way. the names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. No, run back, run back, come on. Hi. I just want to thank you guys for being here and taking the time out of your busy schedules just to come here and talk to all of us about the shows that we love. Um, and so you guys were saying earlier that you're just normal people um, and that normal people create television and film. Uh, on a professional level, how does a normal person like myself in the industry get to meet people like you, get to have meetings with normal people like yourselves to talk about making these sorts of shows and to work together to collaborate on these sorts of amazing shows. Are you reading from a smartphone now? <laughs> I'm glancing at a smartphone. Yeah. On that smartphone is everything you need to make a television program and upload it to an audience. Everything. Forget trying to get meetings. What do you think meetings are going to do for you? In my case, when I meet people, they like me less. I try not to have meetings with people. <laughs> It's, it's, not about, it's not about networking. It's not about contacts. It never has been. It's the biggest lie anyone's ever told. It's not who you know. It's what you do. And these days, what you do, you can do from your iPhone. You can make a show today and upload it, and it could be a huge hit. So the answer is where your questions currently are sitting. <laughs> Thank you. It's an astonishingly good answer, and no one should try to top that. <laughs> I literally have no segue. Just next question, please. Good evening. I'm, I'm Mark from Ohio, and I can't top that. But, <laughs> but uh, my questions are for Stephen and Brian. And first off, I want to state, again, thank you for coming. And Alicia, you've had so many good questions that nearly everything I took is, good, is gone. Oh, but the one I want to talk about is, that we haven't talked about here, but you talk about a lot, Stephen, is continuity. 
and this will apply to Brian too, and how important is continuity in your programs from what you've seen in the past to what you're doing today? Well, fortunately, I spent my entire childhood memorizing every detail of Doctor Who and Sherlock, uh, so that's, that was just very professional of me. Um, it's, uh, um, it matters that you don't throw people out of the show. Continuity is a strange thing. Look at the James Bond films. They just don't bother. They just don't bother. And they're the most successful franchise ever, right? So they just don't bother. Doctor Who, we mostly bother. But uh, if, uh, if uh, all right, I don't know if you know Doctor Who, but if, uh, if in Doctor Who there was an, a Doctor Who episode, I can't see your T-shirt. Oh, I see you do. You've got a Statue of Liberty, which is a Doctor Who monster. <gasps> oh, my remember. gosh. Yes. Oh, that's great. Um, the, um, if in an episode of Doctor Who, uh, just in the normal run of things, the Doctor met the Daleks and said, I have no clue what those things are, everybody in the entire audience would say, right, I'm not putting up with that. They've forgotten that the Doctor knows the Daleks. I'm leaving. I mean it. Everyone would say that's too much of a continuity error. If there was, however, a Doctor Who episode in which the Daleks invaded Earth and the Doctor said, those are Daleks, you must run. The human being said, I have no idea what those strange, rather exotic things on casters are. Um, uh, and uh, everyone will be fine with that, even dedicated Doctor Who fans, despite the fact that in the continuity of the show, Daleks have invaded the Earth so often you wonder if they've got some kind of fetish for it. Right, so... <laughs> now, the point is, one continuity error matters, the, uh, and the other continuity uh, error doesn't matter at all, and yet they're the same continuity error. So continuity matters only insofar as it doesn't kick you out the show. Good point. We are not asking, are we, why James Bond hasn't got a promotion yet. <laughs> he doesn't even have his own secretary. He has to flirt with his bosses. They, uh, they resent giving him cars. <laughs> he, he, they say, oh, well, no, well, give you a car, but be good. He doesn't ever say, how many times have I saved the world? How many times? You owe your existence and your civilization to me. I will want my own car. <laughs> I drifted. <laughs> That you're feels like you're allowed. Show, you're it? allowed. <laughs> and by the way, the Weeping Angels, it would be the idea that I would have thought would be mixed, but it went. You know. uh, would, it, would, would be what? Weeping Angels. Oh, the idea to... Would not work. Would not work. Oh, all right, okay, yeah. Well, I don't know why they worked. <laughs> <laughs> It's a very silly idea. I gotta say, I just have to say, I would kind of love an episode of Doctor Who where all of a sudden the Doctor woke up and he had no idea who the Daleks were, and his companion was like, what do you mean? They're the Daleks, and then he has to figure out why he doesn't know who the Daleks are? Well, wouldn't he just, just be Just saying, I just wrote an episode. Like, why, why, if you're such a genius, Davros, didn't you think of legs? Because everybody else has. <laughs> I mean, that's rubbish, isn't it? I mean, that is crap. <laughs> I mean, look, look, he's, he's a Cyberman. Legs, look at that. Isn't that brilliant? Gun, fantastic. The other thing, talk to me. I mean, what is that? What are you going to do with it? How did it happen when you presented that to the science team? I've come up with a substitute for this. A sucker. How did it go down? <laughs> said, oh, nice, Davros. That's very good. That, that completely re replaces the functionality of four fingers and an opposable thumb. <laughs> Why didn't God think of that? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm sorry. I don't even... That's so funny. <laughs> 
glad to be in the room where that happened with Davros. If anyone else said that about your show, there would be a revolution. <laughs> Everyone that's, said that about my show. That's why we have him here. <laughs> yes, your question. Um, it's kind of a offshoot of uh, the last question you asked, but it's for Michael, Brian, and uh, Steve. Uh, Steve. Nearly uh, <laughs> said Steven. It's okay, it's fine. It's okay, you're uh, good. But if you could um, guess right on an episode of any show that's currently out that isn't your show, um, what show would you like to write on? Bonus points if you have like a really fun log line or pitch for what that episode would be. Just saying. <laughs> Just saying. I've always wanted to do a Doctor Who, actually. And we, we oh, about my it. God. Uh, I think I'll tell Chris, Jeff, no. Please, please tell Chris. Oh, my gosh. I would die. Uh, I love The Flash. I think it would just be so much fun. And I love everyone who makes that show, and it would just be, it's a wonderful room. Like, what would, what would not be great about that? That would be fun. I'm going to answer for Steven. It's Star Trek. <laughs> and it's possible. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely would love to write Star Trek. I adore Star Trek. Um, uh, and obviously Columbo, but, you know... He's, <laughs> He's not returning my texts. So I tried rude. faxing him in case he was old-fashioned, but nothing. Ugh, just inconsiderate. Yeah, <laughs> we will. We'll find Columbo. Yes, Thank you. All right, we have time for one more question. I'm sorry, I wish I could have all of the questions answered all the time and just leave them here forever to do our bidding with questions, but we can't because they're professionals. So, no pressure, but last question. Good evening, and um, I love Doctor Who, but I have to apologize that my question is for Mr. Fuller. Um, I represent all my friends in China. I have to let you know that you have a great, a huge group of fans in China. Oh, they nice. want to say hi to you. They love you. They're buying Blu-rays. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, the question was that uh, you have talking about... Uh, uh, if there will be another uh, Hannibal, they will happening after four years. They won't uh, know. Are you gonna shoot any of the story between these four years, or you not gonna, you know, just leave it to uh, us? Well, we there are certain rights issues that we have to uh, wait two years after the last airing of of the series on NBC before we can re-engage and so that is August 2017 that it would be two years and then we can start exploring. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Love you guys. Thank you. Oh my gosh, you guys, this was incredible. Thank you so much to our panelists. If you guys haven't checked out Nerdist Carnival at Petco Park, American Gods will be there tomorrow, as will Sherlock. I'm so excited. I'm going to be doing the interviews for both of them, and it's going to be great. Um, But definitely come by Petco Park and check that out. We're going to have a great old time. Thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you, everybody. Yes, enjoy your burrito, Nerdist fans. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com.